past week I was talking with a friend of mine who's a a fan of the New England Patriots. (laughs) And folks, sorry, this will get worse before it gets better. Uh, I'm a fan of the New York football giants. I'm a fan of the New York Yankees. He's a Red Sox fan. Somehow we all manage to, you know, get along with each other. Like most of my closest friends are Bostonites for some reason. And our cities have done, uh, in terms of sports teams, sports fans, um, New York and Boston, an awful lot of winning in the last couple of decades. This is the gets worse part. Sorry, Philadelphia and friends. Um, and he and I like to focus on, you know, not just our rooting interest, but actually like being decent people. And one of the things we've seen kind of correlate in our lives is that the, the more we win, the more our sports teams win, I should say, it kind of augurs that we're becoming worse people in a lot of ways. So we want to balance that out. So I said, you know, it's really important that, that I learn some sports uh, fan humility. And I learned that most from being a New York Knicks fan. They have not won a championship since 1973. I was three years old, so I don't remember it at all. They've come close a few times since. And in really gut-churning, like turn-the-knife-in-twisted kind of ways. And most of the time, they've just been awful. And their management is dysfunctional, if not outright unethical. So I learn sports fan humility from rooting for the New York Knicks. And still, I figure it could be worse I could be a Sixers fan. (laughs) So maybe if you're a Sixers fan, you've seen this. As a joke or intentionally, trust the process. (laughs) We don't draft that well. Trust the process. We don't sign any top flight free agents. Trust the process. Well, this past week they've won three games in a row. And actually, eight out of ten games overall, so maybe all that time of trusting the process, real or tongue-in-cheek, has actually come around to bear fruit. Now, that phrase, trust the process, maybe someone has said that to you in your life, or you've heard it, and your immediate reaction is, hell no, I'm not going to trust the process. I mean, our tradition, our Unitarian Universalist tradition is not a tradition that just says blind faith, trust the process. Credibility, authority, trust, these are earned things. These are mutual things. These are reciprocal things. It's not just trust the process. And yet, if you scratch the surface of trust the process, there may be a deeper, more wholesome intention or affirmation there, which is remain open. In those uncertain times, in those doubting times, in those moments when we might want to shut down and foreclose opportunity, foreclose the opening, how can we stay open? And I don't think that phrase, trust the process, does the work it really is intended to. So I try and take it one level deeper, cultivate a deeper faith in openness, which is this form. Trust that it's all a process. Trust that life itself is a process. Trust that things are always becoming me, you, all of us, this world itself, always becoming, never finished, never final. And that yet, if we trust that it is all a process, that even the Sixers might turn out okay. 
I mean, in a serious way, this is what has really been cultivating within my heart, I'd say the last three or so years. I first uh, was drawn to mindfulness, and many of you know I teach mindfulness here at Wellsprings, beyond the congregation. I first was drawn to mindfulness because I just wanted to chill out just a little bit more. I wanted to calm down a little bit more. The people who know me most intimately know that I am much, much more fun to be around when I can just chill out a bit more. And so, you know, that's why I took a foundational mindfulness group, and that's why I started to practice on a regular basis. And I noticed I felt more calm, and I felt more at ease, and I felt a little bit more open. And the thing is, it didn't stop there. All those things are great, but that's not really what the depth of mindfulness and the tradition it comes from, which is Buddhism, promises us. The reason that I am so drawn to the teachings and the traditions of the Buddha path, and there's other traditions that do this as well, it's just in Buddhism, they're really clear about it. Everything is in the process of becoming. All forms partake of a deeper formlessness. Life itself is change. And so this kind of feeds my intention for the small group that I'm offering, the four-week springboard, one of our small groups for spiritual growth. It's called Transforming Poison into Medicine. Buddhism loves like vice lists and virtue lists and seven of these and ten of those and the eightfold path and the four noble truth. And so one of these, what's called the three poisons, greed, it's pretty poisonous. I think we can all agree. Hatred, pretty poisonous as well. We look around our world, we can see that as well too. And then a final one, delusion. Maybe we hear that word and we think that doesn't sound like, that's not great, but it doesn't sound poisonous. <laughs> But here's the thing. Of the three poisons, delusion is the root poison. Because what we are deluded about or ignorant of is this reality of constant, unceasing change. Impermanence. That everything is in the process of becoming. And why is it poisonous if we don't understand the truth of delusion? Because I think if we scratch the surface, we'll see there all egocentrism and the roots of all evil. We'll see vanity and we'll see violence. We'll see where these things come from. This urge to control, to manipulate, to exploit. It really derives out of this sense that we are something solid and fixed, and final, and so any change threatens us. To use a word that isn't really a word, but is the best word I can come up with, we thingify ourselves. <laughs> we make ourselves into a thing, bordered, and completely boundaried, and completely separate from the rest of this changing world. And what we do to ourselves if we insist on this ultimate separateness is we keep ourselves away from our most natural, healing, and wholesome state, which is to grow. And so this is why I sit every day. Yes, to calm down, and that's really nice, <laughs> but that's a byproduct now. Every day when I sit, I see it come <laughs> and I see it go. 
all the stories, all the dramas, all the stuff, the mental images that project in my mind that is happening there, but it's really not happening out there. I get to see it all come up. The wonderful and sometimes a lot less than wonderful little drama that happens. The ideas that are insistent that I say, hmm, I'd like to pay attention to that anyway. The ideas, the feelings I wish weren't there, and by pushing them away, they just stay even more. But in a totally non-conceptual way. I mean, this is why no one can download the truth of impermanence into you. But to recognize it for ourselves is to open to that reality of growth. I sit every day as my bouncing back practice. Because I don't want to be stuck. Because I know when I get stuck, I cause suffering for myself. And I cause suffering for other people. When societies are stuck, they cause suffering for themselves. And they cause suffering for other people. Some of you might remember a very powerful campaign from a few years ago. You throw that up on the screen. Remember this? It gets better. I remember this campaign. It was targeted for LGBTQ youth who have horrifyingly high levels of suicide and self-harm and incidences of mental health that is compromised simply because they are in themselves in a society that so often will not accept the integrity of their being alive. And so this It Gets Better campaign was a message from older generations of LGBTQ teachers and allies saying, it gets better for you. Stay with this life. Stay here. Wonderful, heartful campaign. And here's the interesting thing I started to see, and I saw it from LGBTQ elders, friends of mine, people I know on Facebook, saying, you know what? Actually, It Gets Better is kind of problematic. <laughs> Because it's almost like, oh, it's just naturally going to get better. (laughs) And he said, no, it doesn't always. It's problematic because the positive change is not inevitable. But if we can trust that life is a process that we are involved in and is not separate from us, then it gets better can be a promise that our hands, our efforts can help to fulfill. If we understand that all the way down, that it's all a process and we're partaking in it, then what we do has tremendous agency and tremendous power. This is why it's so important that we show up in this life to be agents of love and compassion and justice because these things aren't just going to magically happen. This is why I marched yesterday with the millions this is why i know so many of you here in philly or elsewhere marched living out a truth conscious or not the great christian writer annie dillard said she said the only hands that god has are these these are the hands of becoming all of us all of us And if we recognize the power of our agency and the good that we can do, then we will participate in that process of bringing greater love, justice, wholeness, healing, compassion into this life. That's why I showed up yesterday. This is why it's so important that we show up for this work of healing and wholeness. And I got to tell you, 
I am radically, radically underslept. I'm going to take the, the monster of all pastor naps this, this, this afternoon. It's a good thing you got two ministers here. And I, maybe Lee wants to take her pastoral nap as well too. Don't let it be as long as mine is because if they need to reach me, it's going to be tough today. All right. So no crises folks. All right. You need either of us. We're always there. But I will be planning on taking a monster pastoral nap because I've had a banner and exhausting last 36 hours in my life. That march yesterday just fueled me, charged me up so much. And the night before that, I saw one of my favorite artists, Frank Turner, who's kind of like a punk Bruce Stingstein, just own the room once again. My just amazing life force of passion and compassion. And one of the songs that Frank Turner sings, he says this, we could get better because we're not dead yet. (laughs) Notice that. Hey, hey, we could notice the conditional. Now we're going to get better. I don't have to do anything. We could get better because we're not dead yet. Now, he's not a Unitarian Universalist. Actually, he despises uh, probably even this form of semi-organized religion. Uh, but he points out a truth that is absolutely true of our tradition, which is that we're a bouncing back tradition. We're a tradition that says we are born, as William Ellery Channing says, with a likeness to God. But that likeness to God, that likeness to divinity is not a fixed and final form. He encourages us practice develop it through your entire life keep it going keep it growing because if it just sits there on the shelf the process will take you in the other way this is what we speak to here in our core beliefs at wellsprings when we talk about the burning bush blazing everywhere and if the burning bush is also blazing everywhere you know what that means it's blazing every time we speak of God and divinity here in our core beliefs as pointers, not as final arrival points, but as pointers to this truth that divinity is not some kind of noun, some kind of thing, because that way of talking about God becomes the way that we talk about ourselves. If God is a king, a ruler out there, up there, somewhere else, not here, our theology, as other teachers have said, wiser than me, our theology becomes our anthropology. (laughs) And how we talk about God becomes how we treat each other. And so to recognize this divinity, this sacred becoming, this process theology, is to recognize that we are literally nothing. (laughs) That word scares you, just break it apart. (laughs) No thing. (laughs) That's the most hopeful frame for life I know. That if I am part of it and you're part of it and we're all part of it, And maybe all those mystical words about transcending birth and death into some other way of being. And here and now, by the way, is where it makes the most difference. And maybe that's where we really grow to, that life has no final point. This is so hopeful, I think, particularly at a moment right now in which there is fear and hatred and a sense of stuckness. To move beyond that stuckness is to recognize that individual or maybe collective longing that so many of us have, nostalgia, some other time, some other place, which probably, hint, right, wasn't all that good for many of us or all of us. And it especially wasn't that good for many of us who are at risk and vulnerable in this society. This is an evolutionary moment. 
And so maybe one of the most powerful things we can do with each other is give each other the encouragement that love is evolutionary. That love encourages us to resilience. And that we can overcome the delusion that somehow the process ended before and isn't still here with us. Of course, this is difficult, individual and collectively, right? Releasing prior forms of life. That's why I think the psalmist, maybe it's the book of Ecclesiastes, says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, which not mourning as in today, mourning. Yeah, still mourning for 15 more minutes. Mourning, M-O-U, <laughs> grieving. Because to let go of past forms sometimes, even if they weren't that good for us, is difficult, and especially if they were good for us, it's painful. But this releasing... This letting go, it is the most signature way that any of us will ever grow. The way that any of us will know what it means to get better, especially at challenging times in our lives. Recently, I saw a play on HBO, Every Brilliant Thing. Maybe some of you know about it. It's a one-man play, although it's highly participatory. Uh, And so I have plants, I have seeds in the audience today that is going to make this participatory right here for us. And it's a story of difficulty, and it's a story of sadness, and it's also a story of joy and hope and resilience. It's a story of this man, this character, this actor, who grows up in a home in which his mom is deeply depressed, deeply struggling with mental illness. And at age seven... When he is seven years old, she makes her first suicide attempt. I mean, who is ever prepared for the suicide or the attempted suicide of someone we love, and especially not a seven-year-old boy? And he doesn't know what to do. And so he starts to come up with a list of every brilliant thing that he can think of that he's going to present to his mother to prove to her that life is still worth living. Number one. Ice cream. Number three. Staying up after bedtime. I got to tell you, uh, for me, that's still thrilling. That's never gone away. (laughs) Sometimes I know where the remote is late at night and I can find it. Number six. Woo! Number 26. Peeing in the sea and nobody knows. (laughs) Tell me that person is not having an amazing amount of fun right now. And tell me when you've all peed in the sea that it isn't a tremendous amount of fun. That's a brilliant thing. Number 101. Kino, the talking dachshund. See, when the, the actor is one act playing every brilliant thing, this is destabilizing. This is devastating when his mom tries to kill herself. And he goes and he talks to the school psychologist, the counselor. And she's not talking to adults. She has to find a way to communicate with the kids, right? So she takes off her shoe and she takes off her sock and she puts the sock on her hand. And it becomes Kino, the talking dachshund. Who would ask him, are you sad? And it was safe enough to say yes. He offered the list of every brilliant thing to his mom. 
He never got a comment back. And then he turned a little bit older, year by year, and kind of left the list alone. And then at age 17, she had another suicide attempt. And he decided he wanted to start the list again. So number 319. The even number starts at <laughs> now, those of you who are Trekkers, right? Not Trekkies. I don't want to be insulting. Trekkers have probably seen all the movies. I've only seen one and two. And I got to tell you, I've never actually made it all the way through one because it is so god awfully boring. So, for my small sample of one and two, I can say absolutely the even number ones are brilliant. Wrath of Khan is amazing. And as I said, it was an unsuccessful suicide attempt, so his mother continued to live. And then the character went away to college. And he recognized that, you know, there was some of his mom that was very much him as well, too. And he struggled socially, and he struggled making connections. And he had this terrible, painful sense of of shyness that no one would ever love him or want to connect with him. And he was very studious and very smart, and he spent most of his time in the library. And he recognized that there was this, this one young, young woman, a fellow student in the library, who he would do this kind of thing, like this furtive glance, and they'd catch each other's eyes, and they'd just like, pretend he was doing something else, like setting things watch or something. But every day, he would see her in the library, and he would want to talk to her. But he couldn't quite muster up the nerve. He recognized that they were always, both of them, reading books. And one day, she came up to him and offered him a book and said, I think you'll like this. And so he said, I think you'll like this. (laughs) And never talking, (laughs) just like kind of running away. But then... Time after time after time, and I'm condensing an hour and 20 minute play into five to seven minutes here, so just bear with me. They would just keep exchanging books, never really talking, never really connecting, never really, you know, letting each other know how they felt about each other, but just exchanging books with one another until one day, months later, she, her name is Sam, said to him, character, there's something really interesting in this book that someone has written. Maybe take a look at it. And because this fellow was a socially clueless doofus, he didn't take a look at it for three months (laughs) until he opened the book and saw to his horror That one page of his list had fallen out. Oh my God, he had loaned her a book that had his list in it. And he was so overcome and so embarrassed that he almost thought he'd rip up the list. But then he took a look at the list. And brilliant things were added to it that weren't in his handwriting. (laughs) One thousand. When someone lends you books... 1001, when someone actually reads the books you give them. 1002, when you learn something about someone who surprises you, but which makes 
perfect sense to you. 1003, realizing that for the first time in your life that someone is occupying your every waking thought and you can't eat or sleep or concentrate and that they feel familiar even though they're brand new to you. 1004, finding a way to say this without being in the same room at the same time as we're both awfully shy and terrified of rejection. And if I don't say something now, it will never happen. 1005, writing about yourself in the third person. (laughs) And he and Sam start dating. And they fall in love. And they move in together. And he continues the list. Almost up now to five figures. 9,997, falling in love. 9,998, sex. 9,999, staying up late all night talking to someone. 10,000, being cooked for. And they get married. And the list continues And here's the thing. It becomes very, very specific. Nothing can be repeated. So you get something in the 500,000s. Track seven on every great album ever released. (laughs) I'm sure it's true. But this isn't happily ever after. His depression continues over the years. And it deepens. And he and Sam try everything they can do to keep themselves together because they love one another. Until finally, years later, it is clear to both of them that staying together is not healthy. And so he helps her move out and she leaves, even though it's not what either of them want. And then a few years after that, His mom has what they call a completed suicide. The non-shaming way of dealing with that awful reality, of putting it. And he goes home and he helps his father prepare for his mother's funeral with all the sadness and all the difficult emotional realities. And then he gets a text a couple days before His mom is to be buried. I heard about your mom. Give me a call anytime. I'd love to hear your voice. Love, Sam. P.S. I heard that Beyonce is related to the composer Gustav Mahler. This should be on the list. Truly a brilliant thing. And for the first time in a long time, Our character picks up his list a few days after his mom's funeral and writes 826,979. The fact that Beyonce is Gustav Mahler's eighth cousin four times removed. (laughs) And he continues with the list all the way up to a million. A million brilliant things. If you haven't had a chance to see it, go ahead and try and see it. Even though I've given a lot of it away, I really haven't given the heart of it away. Every brilliant thing 
was his form of bouncing back. Couldn't save his mom. Life is sometimes just that difficult and just that painful. And still, that's why resilience matters as much as it does. Because this list, the genius of it, they put together, was that it was developmentally appropriate, right? He didn't stay with ice cream and peeing in the sea, as brilliant as those things are. He kept developing by noticing and naming all throughout his life, especially when he needed it the most, especially when he was the most in pain, the brilliant things that were brilliant at 7 and 17 and 27 and into his life. I think that especially right now for all of us in this moment in the life of our country, in this moment in which so many of us are struggling of how to respond from the depth of the wholeness of who we hope to be, to allow our hands to give shape to love and to justice and compassion. That if we wish to really resist, not with hatred, but to resist those poisons that are a part of our lives, I think all of us got to remember our brilliant things. And not the brilliant things from a long time ago. Maybe they give you inspiration for now. But the brilliant things that you notice right now. The brilliant things that help you bounce back. The brilliant things, sometimes very basic things, the ordinary praise things that call you into the ongoing process of growth because the universe is not done with you or me or any of us, not if we scratch the surface of this life. If we want to resist the poisons and build our resilience, now is a time for radical self-care, to take care of yourself as the precious being and becoming that you and all of us are. If we do this, we may recognize the truth that John O'Donohue, the great mystic Gaelic poet and priest said, he said, and when we cross a new threshold worthily, what we do is we heal. We heal the patterns of repetition that were in us, that had caught us somewhere else. We heal we grow and we trust that it's all a process this is the heart of our movement this is the heart of why we say the burning bush is blazing everywhere this is the heart of why we took our mission from Walt Whitman who Unitarian Universalists like to claim is Unitarian Universalist but he's really not because he found us too stuffy so maybe we here at Wellsprings can be worthy of Walt Whitman by being less stuffy I think we're doing an excellent job <laughs> Because this is our tradition and this is our mission. What Whitman said. That we are all called of us to the open road of the soul. And if you remember that poem, that invitation was not just us alone. He said, come. Take my hand. We remember to take each other's hands on this open road of the soul. We know that we're never alone. This open road of the soul calling us to the onward growth, individually, collectively, on, in our own hearts, between our own hands. Walk the open road of the soul to where we haven't been before, 
walk the open road of the soul to where a love not yet known but a love supreme hangs out waiting for us to realize. Walk the open road of the soul. Walk it bouncing, walk it crawling, walk it however you can. Let's accept that invitation today. Recognizing the brilliance that we already are. All of us. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? So many words, so many names for the divinity, for the sacred flow through all of us. Today, we'll just call it the open road. The call to the open road. May we recognize the brilliance sparkling underneath our feet. And in doing so, maybe we recognize as well, too, that we're feeling a little stuck. We're feeling a little caught by something in the past. Maybe it's something that we think, oh, if only I could have done that better or right, or if only I could get back there because it was so good, or only if I could let it go because it was so painful. Maybe we can just recognize it's okay to be stuck. Everyone gets stuck and forgive ourselves. And maybe in that forgiveness, allow a little bit of that letting go to just happen, not in a forceful way, so that we might turn ourselves right here and right now and see the brilliance of this moment, even small things. May we walk May we crawl, may we march with love and justice and compassion more deeply than we ever have before because right now it's being called forth from us more deeply than we ever have before, making our way on the open road of the soul back to our own hearts. Amen.